0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast. The podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can find us directly on our social media pages, Healing Paths Recovery, or directly on our website, www.healingpathsrecovery.com. And while you're there, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie. On today's episode, I wanted to talk about and focus a little bit on disengaged family systems. And I want to talk in more detail about what disengaged families are, what they look like, how it feels to be part of a disengaged family, and what are short term and long term problems that can result from being raised in a disengaged family system. And then finally, how to heal again, at least to the extent that I can cover that in a podcast episode, how we start that healing process from coming from a disengaged family system. Now, also at the end of this episode, I wanna talk a little bit about, okay, here's the disengaged, here's what a mesh looks like and do some comparatives between the two. Often I think of, if we think of you know family systems happening on a continuum, at one end of that continuum, we would have disengaged family systems. And at the other end of that continuum is the Amesh family systems. So they're very different from each other. There's also some similarities. I often think of that line. If we see that happening along a continuum, one straight line, if we pull the ends down into a circle, we start to see some similarities, right? Like sometimes I will say like 360 degrees from disengaged or dysfunctional, right? is still dysfunctional. It's just the, other end of the coin it's on the the other side of that coin so there are some similarities but they're also different and then you know again if we're going back to that continuum we would see healthy families kind of falling in the middle range you know like like i said so again i'll talk about how important it is to remember that like in mesh family systems disengaged family systems happen on a continuum They're not carbon copies of each other. And then I'm going to do another episode because I feel like, you know, I've gotten some questions from people who have written in who, you know, relate to some of the things I've been talking about when I've been focusing on different family systems, but there's also some other layers that can get layered on top of, you know, uh, maybe I have an enmeshed family system, but then a mesh doesn't quite capture the characteristics exactly of my family. Sure, that happens. There's a lot of families in the world. So I'm not gonna be able to talk to the uniqueness of each family system. But I do feel like there are some maybe common layers that aren't totally captured when we talk about disengaged or we talk about enmeshed. So I'm gonna do another episode kind of collectively addressing those other ones And then you can, you know, see how they might layer nicely on top of an a system, or they might layer better on top of a disengaged family system. So I'll do another podcast episode kind of looping in those other variances that might happen on top of, you know, this level of family system. So let's start off with a definition of disengagement and then talk about how it relates to relationships in general, and then specifically how it develops in families. So to disengage means to release from attachment or connection to loosen or unfasten. So when we talk about disengaged families, the definition would be a family whose members are mutually withdrawn from each other, psychologically and emotionally. Now, two episodes ago, I did a podcast episode talking about childhood emotional neglect and Often, I think when we think of disengaged families, when we're talking about, sorry, let me back up. When we're talking about childhood emotional neglect, the image that comes into our mind is maybe one of a disengaged family system. Now, like I talked about in the Amesh family system, we would still see the individual needs of the members of the family in an Amesh family being neglected, but it would look differently than a disengaged family system. So I think often when we think of childhood emotional neglect kind of envisions some type of a disengaged family system, even though it happens in both a mesh family systems and disengaged family systems. So in disengaged families, you know, they can be physically in the same space or, you know, maybe as they grow up, there's a lot of space that comes between family members. They live all over the country and they're not physically connected at all. Now I often find if parents have divorced, sometimes we have a dynamic where one parent enmeshes with the kids while the other parent disengages from the kids. I'm not saying this always happens in divorce. I've worked with couples where they divorce and both parents stay equally involved with their kids. And I wouldn't say necessarily that there's a meshment happening, but they are involved with the kids and the marriage just simply did not work out but they are very effective at co-parenting. But in some families where there is a divorce, one parent tends to enmesh with the kids and the other parent disengages from the kids. So in that case, kids are going to experience both enmeshment and disengagement. They can you know, feel either of those. I was actually an adult when my parents divorced, although they could have divorced, I would say. I mean, the reasons to divorce other than it would have been the 1970s, but reasons for divorcing were present probably from the time I was born. I don't know, at least by the time I was three or four, I don't think they were happy in their marriage. And I would say my dad very much was disengaged, even though they didn't divorce until I was an adult. My dad was very disengaged. Sometimes when I'm describing my dad, I will say I, I literally I don't say this to, you know, make people feel bad for me, but I do not believe my dad could have cared less about his sick children than he did. I I think he cared the least amount possible. Now could he have been more cruel? Sure. I've read books where, you know, maybe there's more cruelty. And I think on some level, the fact that he was so disengaged and he wasn't physically present all that much, maybe was a saving grace for us because when he was present, he was typically angry. He could become violent. You know, he could be very explosive. And small things, things that I weren't wasn't even aware of could set him off. And then I would say, you know, for my mom, it was more of an enmeshment. Again, there were six of us. I don't know that she was enmeshed with all six of us. I, th- I think I've mentioned this before. I don't believe that my mom enmeshed with me, but I think there were reasons my, the role that I played in my family, you know, being the second oldest, I think, and, and then my personality, you know, there were some things about my temperament and my personality that I think would have made it difficult for my mom to enmesh with me, although I can see the enmeshment with different, with other siblings in different ways. But still, I would say, I mean, I know the disengaged family system, I know a disengaged parent, and I feel like I, I know that well, but the system that rings the most true to me or the most familiar to me is the enmeshed family system, even though, like I said, I don't know that my mom necessarily enmeshed with me, but it is the system that my brain understands more. So, I, you know, I think we can have both of those within us, we can know both the disengaged, and we can know the enmeshed. And, you know, sometimes they don't fall into these nice, clean cut boxes where they're separate from each other, and they don't overlap each other. I think a lot less is clear and a lot more is messy. So anyway, you can, you can know both of them, you can have a parent who is disengaged, you can have a parent who is enmeshed. So I I just wanted to point that out, too, that you might go back and forth like, oh, I know this. Oh, this resonates with me. But so did this one on the enmeshment podcast. And that's not that's not uncommon. That's not unfamiliar. Now, if if a parent is more disengaged and one parent is more enmeshed, usually the kids are going to feel more secure with the enmeshed parent since the disengaged parent simply isn't there or they're just not involved. And, you know, often as a way of protecting our psyche in childhood, kids need to believe they have one functional parent. So if they have an enmeshed parent, that parent is the healthy one. And like I said, oftentimes there can be some confusion about, well, I'm just in a really close family who really care for me. And they don't necessarily understand that, no, this is actually a And so it isn't until later in adulthood that they're able to maybe tackle the reality that both of their parents were dysfunctional in ways that negatively impacted them, even though it looked different from one parent versus the other. Now, like I said, I think it's important to point out that disengaged families exist on a spectrum, so you can have extremely disengaged families on one end and somewhat disengaged on the other, and, you know, the family can fall anywhere along that spectrum of disengagement. Disengaged families tend to have rigid boundaries, which are manifest in cold or indifferent responses. Now, this is disengaged families where I would say physically both parents are there, like growing up. They're both in the house where like with my dad, he disengaged and like just wasn't there. Like we could go a week or two weeks and not even see him, even though he lived in the house. And he would come home every night, like we may all be in bed before he got home, and then he might get up early and leave. And so we could go a couple of weeks and not even see him, not even interact in any way. So that's some really extreme disengagement, I would say, but not in the way where If parents are actually there day in day out, this is where they live. And this is where they spend the majority of their time. Then we're going to see rigid boundaries. It's going to feel kind of cold or just, you know, not, it'll feel indifferent. Maybe we would see there's little to no communication and there tends to be no flexibility in the family patterns you know, if if there was some flexibility in the family patterns, maybe there would be some effective support and guidance for the kids. But instead, the rigidity does the parenting. Now, it can be that one or both parents set the rigidity around these boundaries and have high expectations for members of the family. But that's the extent to the parenting that happens in the family. Now, sometimes this can be the case again, like in maybe we would say very rigidly religious families where the parent's religion acts as the parent setting rules roles but there's not the relational interaction amongst the family members so while the family can all live in the same house they can all spend time at the same time in the house it would be though time spent as if each were alone rigid homes, we know tend to have a clinical look, you know, kind of having that place for everything and everything in its place. Now, I like having a place for everything and everything in its place. I know that I like that. And I know some of my cleanliness issues. I mean, I, I like a clean house and I don't think I've ever been overly rigid about that. But I, I know that part of that I could be but I know that part of that comes from the chaos and the lack of control I felt as a kid. And so I think I've had an awareness of like, yeah, I would like it to be this way, but then I can dial it down a notch or two and be like, okay, here's what's appropriate to expect from my kids. So, you know, when we're looking at rigid homes, we might look at mealtimes, they're usually are exactly at the same time every day, sometimes with a set menu for different days and meals might be eaten somewhat in silence or maybe only the parents are speaking and kids are contributing very little to the family discussion or they're following a format that's set by one or both of the parents you know so parents want to talk about a particular topic and maybe it's a little bit more lecturing to the children but not a lot of interaction or just unplanned spontaneous discussion in disengaged families that aren't quite as rigid, or maybe in modern disengaged families, mealtime, you know, would still look and feel like it's done in isolation. And it might also literally be done in isolation where kids cook something, they can cook mac and cheese, they can cook ramen noodles, and then they go in their room, and they eat in their room by themselves. Or maybe everyone sits in front of the TV during dinner, but there's not real interaction, there's not real discussion but everybody's watching a sports game or everybody's watching a certain show without the real interaction among family members. Conversation might be limited to impersonal topics like the weather or politics. Again, this would be more delivered in a lecturing, here's what you should think. And the kids might be well taken care of. They might be involved in sports or dance, martial arts or other activities, but there would be little involvement from the parents. So like a disengaged family system, that parent is not gonna be the teen mom, right? Or the dance mom. That's not how that family system works. Parents may have rigid expectations around their kid's performance in whatever extracurricular activities they've signed them up in or around school and grades. But again, little parental involvement in helping kids meet those expectations. Parents might know the friends of their kids, but really not be much more involved more than that. They probably wouldn't be the hangout house, or they might not really know what their children do outside the home or who they do those things with. In disengaged families, there's little feeling of nurturance and parents often lack emotional attunement with their children. Occasionally, families could be rigid in emotional structure, but not visually rigid So what we would see isn't necessarily, it doesn't look really controlled and really rigid, but internally they are experiencing it with a lot of rigidity. And in disengaged families, members of the family function as distinct entities, rather than being a part of and connected with the whole family system. So children in these families often feel lonely. They often feel isolated family members learn to live very separate lives with very little expectation of any connection physical abuse is possible within these families it's not necessarily a given but it is possible emotional abuse is more of a certainty because again when we're looking at that emotional entombment that isn't happening in disengaged family systems we would say yeah that's a that's abusive those kids need that emotional attunement, and the parent isn't giving that, isn't providing that, and that is abuse. And then also sibling incest is possible in these families because, because the parental responsibility is limited. Maybe you know there's mental health issues going on, maybe one or both parents struggle with depression, or they're just so involved in activities outside the home, work, social you know, responsibilities, that they're not really noticing what's happening in the home and the children are attempting to create some type of connection maybe amongst themselves with each other or they might attempt to act in sexual ways with their siblings in order to escape these feelings of loneliness and isolation disengaged families we know also can produce children who are potential victims of pedophiles or other types of people who prey upon and take advantage of others. And this isn't just limited to the childhood years. Because their parents are distant, but imposing figures, children may seek closeness or affection from any adult who's inclined to oblige. And children in these families tend to lack and then let later reject guidance, which can also make them vulnerable to being the victims of others. Now I will say family incest is also a possibility in a mesh family systems because there's so little room for personal privacy, personal boundaries, and there's frequent boundary crossing of the members within a mesh family systems. So, you know, sexual incest that sibling incest is possible in both disengaged and in a mesh family systems, but the underlying motivation behind it would be different depending on the family system. So I want to talk for a minute about disengagement versus enmeshment. So with enmeshment, when we're talking about the emotional bonds between family members, it's intertwined, there's not a lot of separation. On the opposite end of the spectrum, with disengagement, disengagement occurs when family members are completely emotionally separate from one another. So there's not touching of lives. Amesh families often feel warm, where disengaged families will feel cold, unaware, indifferent, a lack of connection. Now differentiation or individuation is going to be difficult in disengaged families, but for different reasons than in amesh families. So another way to look at this dynamic of differentiation or individuation is to think of how the family system handles issues around closeness and separation. And disengaged families handle issues around closeness and separation differently than a mesh families. So in a mesh families, separateness is felt to be threatening to the family system. And as I talked about in the last episode, the family system will have various ways of responding to those trying to separate from to try to bring that family member back into the mesh system and and to get compliance from them. Which is what makes differentiation or individuation difficult. In disengaged families, however, there's too much separateness that's going on. And there's not enough togetherness, which also makes individuation difficult because in order to differentiate, we move away from our primary relationships. And figure out who we are as a person in order to come back and engage as we are, or as we are this person. Differentiation is active, it's an active process. It's an ongoing process of defining the self, revealing the self, clarifying boundaries, and then managing the anxiety that comes from risking either greater intimacy or potential separation. So when relationships have felt smothering, And love came at the cost of self as in a mesh families or on the opposite side, when relationships were hard to access and we were continually left with a feeling of distance and disengagement from our primary relationships, our need for attachment and connection can override our need to differentiate and develop our authentic self. Now, often both parents are supportive of a disengaged structure existing in the family. But sometimes just one parent holds the power or acts as an autocrat and all decisions are relegated to them. If the marriage is to survive, which I'm not saying here that it should, just saying if the couple stays together, the parent who maybe doesn't have the same level of power would have to enable the autocratic structure of the family. If maybe they came from a disengaged family where this was modeled, In some disengaged families, other family members may live in fear of the autocrat and physical abuse, as well as emotional abuse is a possibility. In other disengaged families, control is exercised by the withdrawal of love. So silent treatment, maybe the silent treatment goes on for weeks and the kid is like, what did I even do? I don't even know. Maybe the parent won't even engage enough to say, I'm disappointed that you did this. They just withdraw love any type of interaction. Often in a mesh families, control is exercising by this overly sweetness. You know, where's my little boy gone? Or I just miss my little girl, kind of getting you back into that role that they've conditioned you to play. Now, most disengaged families don't necessarily see themselves as disengaged but they see themselves as being traditional or structured, raising independent children. All of those things sound good, but they might each have their own issues that go along with them. Being raised in disengaged families with an unavailable parent or guardian can lead to a life of unstable friendships, strings of failed relationships, emotional neediness, an inability to self-regulate, they often have difficulty providing for themselves, or sometimes, which is less likely, but they can go to the other extreme where they're toxically independent. And usually there's a lot of confusion about themselves and their life story, the role that they play. Now, I've talked about some of the emotions that are common for kids who are raised in disengaged families, like loneliness emptiness, isolation, confusion about the self. They're also very likely to suffer shame from very young ages. Now, you might be surprised to learn, maybe you already know this, that babies can feel shame, but they do. They don't have the cognitive capacity or linguistic skills to express it in words, but you can see it clearly if you watch. There's also been a lot of infant research that has shown that babies are capable of feeling shame when their emotional needs are not met. So shame can begin at a very early age. And when shame starts at such an early age, it often becomes a primary emotion. So they often grow up feeling lonely, they might be described as shy, and they have a sense that they don't deserve to be loved that something is inherently wrong or flawed within them. And then their own emotional withdrawal from other relationships can in fact make it difficult for them to connect with others, which perpetuates their cycle of loneliness and shame and the belief that they aren't deserving of love, which is really tragic when you think about it. Now, of course, many unforeseen things can happen in a lifetime for kids from dysfunctional disengaged family systems, and they might meet others who are able to reach beyond their withdrawal and their isolation to form important emotional bonds. If I'm working with a client though, I usually will tell them like, I don't recommend waiting for this to happen. That's putting a lot of responsibility on this other person and sure. Is it possible? Yeah, but let's not act as though it's probable. Sometimes this can result, you know, this need for somebody to show up and reach beyond their wall of withdrawal and isolation can result with them spending a lot of time in fantasy, developing addictions to numb or escape the emotions that are present. Growing up in a family where there is emotional disengagement presents emotional challenges for the individuals in the family with shame being one of the primary challenges. So as kids in disengaged families grow up and get older, they often struggle with self-esteem issues. They're more likely to get caught up in a bad crowd. They're more likely to try drugs or to experience teenage parenthood themselves, to become parents in their teens. As adults, they often find it difficult to hold steady employment or find healthy relationships and financial stability. All of which are kind of indications of some system showing up and being consistently safe and available to them. So while they're longing for intimacy and connection, which was so lacking throughout their childhood in their pursuit of romantic partners, they actually may seek avoidant individuals, unconsciously repeating the relationship pattern of their childhood. They can have difficulty saying no to others engage in people pleasing behaviors and really struggle with setting boundaries due to this fear of being abandoned again. If I set a boundary, maybe they'll just disappear and walk away from me because I'm not deserving to be engaged with. They have a conscious fear of abandonment and then this unconscious fear of intimacy. They long for intimacy and closeness and the fear of this very thing can catch them off guard because it's the very thing they're longing for. This can create powerful cycles of love addiction in adults coming from disengaged families. The unconscious fear of intimacy comes from not knowing how to have close connecting and intimate relationships because their family was so disengaged, they never learned that, they never had a model for that. Other than maybe if they go there in their fantasy. They may also seek inappropriate or unhealthy role models to substitute for the neglectful parent again, unconsciously recreating some of the trauma and pain of their childhood. Again, I'm going to quote Pia Melody here again in her book, Facing Love Addiction. She says, quote, our notions about how to live life come from our connection with caregivers, abandonment experiences leave children with the message of worthlessness, as well as a distorted sense of how to care appropriately for themselves. Love addicts usually didn't have enough appropriate bonding with their caregivers and probably experienced moderate to serious abandonment or neglect in their childhood. Young children feel loved to the extent that somebody takes care of them. Caring transmits the message, you're important, you matter, and you are loved. When children do not get enough connection and nurturing from their parents, they experience serious difficulty with self-esteem love addicts usually experience much deep pain and sadness and an acute sense of loss during childhood because a part of themselves was denied the opportunity to grow properly when their caregivers failed to take care of them this pain goes very deep and back far beyond the earliest conscious memories she continues as children love addicts experienced enormous fear because they were helpless to create connection with their caregivers They often describe their experience as a feeling of being cut off and also of being extremely empty because they weren't filled with nurture by their caregivers. And because they weren't nurtured for who they were, they had trouble being or liking their natural selves. In addition, many were angry because their needs went unmet. Since there are fleeting moments when such children are conscious of the abuse they are experiencing, this severe degree of separation in childhood the original neglect or abandonment experience has an extremely toxic effect on children that extends into adulthood. The original abandonment experience is particularly filled with pain, fear, anger, shame, and emptiness. Because children from disengaged families have no place to express the emotions, they store them up inside and fire them off years later when the threat or actual experience of being left in adulthood stimulates the accumulated emotions. Love addicts as children long to get connected, to belong to someone, to finally feel safe by bonding with people who they think will feel their gaping emptiness and banish their feelings of inadequacy. They seek the person who will relieve the stress of the original abandonment experience. As adults, almost any other person will do. A lover, a parent, a friend, their own children, a counselor, a mentor, the fantasy of a rescuer is born. And our culture absolutely helps to foster and encourage these fantasies. Fantasies about being rescued by a hero who gives her life meaning and vitality. For heterosexual male love addicts, the fantasy isn't much different. It usually involves a super loving and nurturing female, the cosmic lover who will love them completely, make them feel whole, whose love will heal all of their wounds and put them back together strong and capable and brave where they feel alive and safe and vulnerable at last. These fantasies become more and more ingrained in the subconscious mind as the person grows older. As adults, they continue to search for someone to fulfill their fantasy, not realizing their pain and feelings of emptiness have to be faced and felt appropriately. And they have to learn how to care for and love themselves now i want you for a minute to consider just take a minute think back to biology class maybe it was clear back in high school think about you know physiology class just consider our human body's complexity and how a one just one change in one physiological component alters and impacts so many other parts of our physiology The interrelation and interdependence of parts are intrinsically related so that our body's ability to function at all depends on an intricate web of interconnectedness, different systems, interconnected with other different systems, different organs, interconnected with other organs. Now consider for a minute, a family, maybe two parents, a couple of children, and think of them all of them together as a human body, or one whole organism. Now, one component of the family, or let's say one individual, simply can't be taken out and understood in isolation. Just like our body, one individual of a family system affects all others. Everyone's deeply embedded emotional and behavioral processes are seamlessly wired together. So from a family systems therapist perspective, the therapist would describe the family as a complex and interconnected system. They would see maladaptive behaviors in one family member as connected to the whole family system. And therefore it's likely to affect and create what they would call disease being at dis-ease, meaning we're not at ease in the system, in other areas if this isn't properly addressed and treated. The entire system or the entire family can become plagued with maladaptive interactions so that it seems to literally stop the functioning. Now, much of the therapeutic work, if we're working with a family from a family perspective, centers on boundaries, not necessarily the physical boundaries of walls and borders, But psychological boundaries. These are the types of boundaries that can't be seen or touched, we have a sense of them, we feel them, we know them. And they shape themselves in the forms of beliefs, perceptions, convictions, understandings, as individuals form self concepts, based on beliefs regarding who they are. And these beliefs surround individuals, distinguishing them from others, starts to create this sense of otherness, right? So I'm outside of the system, I'm an other not part of these invisible and impactful boundaries are also drawn around groups and subgroups of people. So if we think of a family system, think of the parents, let's have a two parent family. They surround themselves with boundaries that separate them from other couples. Maybe it separates them from their parents in a family that is healthy. This couple is separated from their parents. They're separate from their children, meaning there's not a confusion between am I the parent or am I the child? Similar if we look at like hierarchies that are created in a work system. Sometimes it's easier to see it maybe outside of the family system. So let's look in a work system. Managers in a corporation have boundaries that separate them from those who report to them. Hierarchies are established for a reason. I'm talking about healthy hierarchies here, even though there can be a lot of unhealthy hierarchies where the power is misused and abused. But let's go with functional hierarchies. They're established to influence and affect the proper functioning of the group or the organization. They delegate tasks and they ensure the proper checks and balances are in place. So if we look at that system in a workplace, and then we back it up and flip it and start to look at it in the family system, we would see that children are a subgroup within a family. They maybe have a boundary around them that makes them separate from their parents, right? They are the kids. They are to be cared for. They are to be nurtured and attuned to. And whose job is that? The parents or the managers, those higher up in the hierarchy. So ideally the child subgroup holds less power than the parents and also is able to give feedback and ideas or opinions to the parents that the parents will take into consideration. So family systems therapists often are confronting families and situations where boundaries have become crossed, where the boundaries are distorted or non-existent because we know that these types of situations are what lead to dysfunctional and unhealthy relational patterns. Now there's many types of boundary problems within families, probably as many problems as there are families. So just for a minute, let's reflect on that. There's approximately 9 billion people on the planet. And if we say, let's just say the average family size is four, then the number of families would be approximately 2.25 billion. So that's a lot of different compilations, issues, complexities that we can have going on. Family systems therapists though, assess families for boundary problems along a spectrum, placing boundary problems between the following two extremes. So again, this is that continuum I talked about at the beginning. So they're looking at boundaries And anything along this continuum with enmeshed families at one end, enmeshment families like exhibiting signs of smothering, oversharing, caring that reaches beyond normal, right? In enmeshed families, boundaries don't allow for individuation. They're too fluid. They've become crossed and often they're distorted and boundaries are constantly crossed in numerous ways in enmeshed families. And then on the other side of the continuum, we see disengaged or detached families, families that share little to nothing, typically over rigid families. There's little to no communication. There's no flexibility in family patterns to accommodate effective support and guidance of the kids. And then rigid families typically have one authoritarian individual in charge of all the others in the family. Most decisions are decided by the one in charge without negotiation, compromise, and influence from other family members. In family systems, you can have rigid, enmeshed families, or you can have rigidly disengaged families. Either of these has one person who's at the top of the hierarchy and who holds power and authority in the family. Now, the family could lean more towards enmeshed or the other way towards disengaged that is still rigid in how the dynamic is organized and how boundaries are expected to be adhered to and how the dynamic functions. So I wanna talk for a minute, again, like I said at the beginning, I wanna talk about just kind of compare and contrast dysfunctional families that are enmeshed versus dysfunctional families that are disengaged. So some of the things they have in common, like on that continuum, we would say that continuum maybe is of dysfunctional families, both would fall under that umbrella or both would fall on that continuum. In a dysfunctional family, members tend to communicate poorly. They don't tend to listen well to each other. They talk at each other instead of with each other. Individual feelings are not recognized or validated. Parents tend to lecture rather than participate in shared conversation. So that's kind of indicative of dysfunctional families. Now in an Amesh family, family members are discouraged from having thoughts, ideas, or beliefs that might threaten the way their system currently operates. Parents devalue input from the children that questions or challenges their established authority. In disengaged families, they simply don't take the time or have the interest in pursuing communication. Family members live not in community, but in some degree of isolation from each other, and there's little mutual accountability or responsibility, except in areas that pertain to daily maintenance or survival. Now let's talk about boundaries. Boundaries define who you are, where you end and where others begin. Boundaries in relationships are what distinguish each person as an individual with separate thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. In an Amesh family, boundaries are rigidly placed around the entire unit, and the most powerful individuals in the unit control the whole system. Family members are encouraged to keep and protect family secrets. In an Amesh family, there's a lack of privacy, and members intrude and interfere in interfering each other's lives freely. Amesh families are frequently characterized by Some form of abuse, which can include physical, sexual or substance abuse. And family members who attempt to break free of enmeshment are usually ostracized and accused of betrayal. Boundaries with disengaged families. Well, a disengaged family has few boundaries. Each member functions independently. Empathy and compassion for family members is often low to non-existent. In contrast with the Amesh family's over involvement in each other's lives, the disengaged family, there's no sense of cohesiveness, no sense of family loyalty. Children in a disengaged family are always neglected to some extent. Physical needs may or may not be met, but emotional needs are typically neglected. And just as the Amesh family exerts strong control, the disengaged one has no internal control mechanisms and members tend to react to the community outside the home rather than living in community within the home. Now, performance-based identities, let's talk about that in terms of Enmesh families. In the Enmesh family, members tend to be manipulated or coerced or even shamed into protecting the family. Individuals can feel a tremendous amount of guilt when they fail to live up to the expectations of others. Children often have roles that have been scripted by parents they might even be parental roles, and these roles predetermine how they should act in certain situations and how they deal with outside threats to the family system. Children who grow up in disengaged families are not taught self-control or how to set personal limits on their behavior. They're generally starved for attention and soon they learn they can obtain it through negative behaviors. Teenagers will shoplift or wantonly destroy the property of others. Often children growing up in disengaged families will be involved with vandalism or petty theft. And these can be performance-based behaviors that provide individuals this sense of importance or this sense of being seen, but it's not necessarily in ways that lead to individual growth or lead to the individual growing into their potential. Let's talk about Emotional maturity so family members living in an enmesh system are not given the opportunity to develop emotional maturity. Sharing personal feelings is a taboo that tends to threaten to expose this family dysfunction. Love is a twisted emotion often conveyed as conditional dependent upon whether a child complies with the familial expectations. Children who grow up in an environment where there's no emotional security can reach adulthood without being able to label or express what they're feeling appropriately. And there's no emotional validation, which means there's no emotional safety In disengaged family there's little emotional maturity, if any, there's little, if any, expression of affection. Children grow accustomed to fending for themselves and there's no emotional role model. Or maybe there's a negative emotional role model. Like if there is abuse happening, you know, it can be, yeah, they get emotionally out of control. And so who would want to have emotions? They don't have another model of emotions that isn't at that extreme of raging or violence. Disengaged children become streetwise. They learn how to survive on their own. And they're often resorting to unconventional or lawless methods. Feelings are a luxury that they cannot really afford because giving into a negative emotion can jeopardize their survival. Let's talk about denial and dishonesty. So both a and disengaged families tend to live a lie. The mesh family preserves the appearance of normalcy and closeness while hiding the severity and the source of its dysfunction. The disengaged family denies the existence and the importance of the family unit. They kind of live more as they're just some people living in the same house instead of a family unit. So in a disengaged family, the members lie not only to others, but to themselves. Actually, this happens in both family systems, enmeshed and disengaged where the family members lie to others, to outsiders and to themselves. Neither family system is really willing to honestly confront its dysfunction or take the steps to change it. The Amesh family fears retribution and change, separateness. The disengaged family denies the need to be part of a family. Dysfunctional families generally have one or more dynamics that tend to permeate the entire system and alter the way in which every family member would normally function. These dynamics can include drug and alcohol addiction or other addictions, mental illness, poor parenting styles, criminal behavior. Some families have little chance to develop normally because of something twisted and unhealthy that forces each member to abandon their dreams, abandon hopes for the future, in favor of developing coping mechanisms that will focus on self-preservation. Dysfunctional families don't tend to thrive. Instead, members spend their lives trying to find ways to simply survive. Now, as humans, we are emotionally resilient, so we know isolated incidents are not permanently scarring. Or if the primary caregiver lacks attunement, maybe there's other relatives, other people in the community who are around, who are loving and pay attention to the children in a loving way. We know that this can mitigate the damage. Of a disengaged or an overly enmeshed primary caregiver however if this isn't an isolated incident and instead is ongoing predictable and we normalize it and maybe there's no one else in the picture who can really make up for this or is aware of this emotional disengagement can cause children to feel very lonely and ashamed of their own need for emotional connection and love so what do you do if you grew up in a family where you felt ashamed of your basic need for love and emotional connection it can be really hard to ask for help one of the things that is essential in overcoming this toxic shame is to talk to somebody about what you're feeling and i get this is hard because when we feel shame the last thing we want others to know about us is what our shame is saying about us. Or we may have a level of comfort in hiding if we came from disengaged families and talking to somebody else about our feelings and about our inherited shame is stepping out of our shadow and shining a light on what happened or what didn't happen. Now, again, I'm gonna say, it probably is not going to be helpful to talk to other family members about this. We may want to, after all, They grew up in the same house as us. So who could better validate our feelings or our reality? Or maybe it's an aunt and uncle who grew up parallel to us. But if they're not in a place where they've broken down their own denial, we'll actually feel more crazy if we turn to them for some validation and to be seen as part of our healing. It is important that we find a safe environment in order to open up, talk about our experience, what that was like in our family, how it's still impacting us today. This can be 12 step groups can be therapy groups where we can hear other stories. We can hear what happened to them. And we like them. We admire them. We look up to them. We can share about our experiences, knowing that they can understand this. This is a place of understanding. Maybe you know, they can validate for us what happened and vice versa. We can validate for them and we can start to see this wasn't about them. They're a great person. They didn't cause this and what happened or didn't happen is not about their value or worth as a human being. I know right now people have their feelings about social media, maybe not just right now, but you know, that's been a growing thing. People, and their angst or their complicated relationship with social media, and there's some valid reasons for that. I'm not negating that. Just saying, I do see clients of mine utilizing certain pages on Instagram or Facebook, following different professionals on YouTube who are putting out some really great content that speaks to them, that resonates with them and helps them understand and articulate their experiences and starts to give them hope for their own healing. So I think that can also be a a way that we start to talk to others or start to understand what happened to us. And then I think we can also, you know, I wouldn't be a therapist if I didn't say we could talk with a therapist, which in many ways is probably the safest in that therapists are bound by confidentiality. And I think most therapists are in this field not to hold you in judgment, not to blame you, but are in this field to help you move towards healing. Hopefully they've done their own work towards their own healing so they know what that path requires. They can help you move towards healing and help you understand what happened to you, why you do the things that you do. The feeling of shame can be so ingrained that we often don't expect our life can change. However, I just want to say many people have been helped to overcome these feelings by therapists who understand how to work with individuals who grew up feeling ashamed of their basic need for love and nurturance, so it is possible. The second thing that is essential in healing is to reassess the sources of shame. Now, as kids we're prone to interpreting our experiences in an egocentric way. I'm not saying here that you know, right now you're choosing to be self-centered or selfish, but the reality is that kids are actually quite egocentric. They see things, all things through a lens that it's about them. And they also lack perspective. They lack an adult perspective. So when things happen to them, it's common for them to interpret it in a way of saying, I caused this. Unless somebody else is there saying this wasn't about you, this wasn't your fault. Obviously, that's not happening in disengaged families. So in that egocentric way, they see them as somehow causing what is happening. Now, it's also important to note that children will choose shame instead of blaming a parent. So an important step in healing is to question your version of your life narrative. Understanding it was the version that you could live with and it served you well for however many years it served you well, but it was not an accurate version and it's not meant to serve you forever. So questioning the conclusions you've drawn, especially if the conclusions began to be drawn in childhood. And then we have to stop believing this version of the story where we're the villain, and we are the reason things went so wrong Maybe one of the conclusions you have drawn is that you're burdensome, you're too much. Now, as a child once myself, and having had four children of my own, I think I can say that children do require a lot from parents. Is that burdensome? Maybe for some, but that is not the fault of the child. It isn't what I would call it, although I have felt at times that I was burdensome as a child and that belief of being burdensome can resurface now and again for me, or feeling like who I am is too much. That's a conclusion I drew from some of my early life experiences. And I can say now with certainty that this was entirely the wrong conclusion to draw. Although I understand my childish interpretation of the events that happened, I can also go back and see now, it wasn't accurate, leaving the conclusions we've drawn unchallenged is a tragedy. Going back to the stories that are intertwined with our wounds and with our trauma can be painful, but we have to go back to understand with more accuracy, our life narrative. We have to go back with our adult perspective and our adult understanding to reassess our childhood telling of the story. We have to go back for our younger self. Healing shame is a core piece of recovery work. Now, although you might not feel it right now, just take a moment, take a breath and know you deserve to have an emotionally fulfilling life. Taking the first step might be the hardest, but it can also be the most important step in overcoming a life of shame and emotional deprivation. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The legal stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.